Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. I'm not seeing my picture up there, so I don't know exactly what's going on. I think my camera is on, but uh, we'll see if we can't uh, get that fixed as we go along. For those few of you that are uh, watching on Rumble, um, yeah, Richie just sent me a thing that says, camera off, but actually my camera is on. And I can see the little light and everything, and it's looking right at me. So <laughs> let me see if I can fix this real quick. Maybe if I uh, turn this uh, camera app off. And nope, doesn't look like it. There's that I'm turning the camera back on. There I am. Am I there? Well, hopefully he'll get that uh, taken care of. If not, uh, I am. Well, that looks not awful like Jesse Romero's set. But <laughs> you know, we're just going to move right along here. Time and tide wait for no man. And that is proven by the fact that it is suddenly October. And so a happy month of the Holy Rosary. We're going to be talking a little bit about that today, the origin of Our Lady Psalter, as it was called in the Middle Ages, and telling some stories about St. Dominic and the, the wonders that God has performed through this most Catholic of devotions. Also, we'll be answering the question, what is tradition? And there I am for, the, uh, for our video uh, viewers. Um, thank you, Richard. Good to uh, see that we got that taken care of. Uh, answering the question, what is tradition? Pope Francis is at it again. He made some rather, uh, uh, how shall we say this, dramatic remarks before the Council of Bishops Conferences of Europe last month on the 23rd of September and um, unwittingly provided us with a good jumping off point for examining the philosophical difference between following tradition versus uh quote-unquote, trying to recover the past. And there is a, an important distinction. We're going to talk about that. But first, as is our custom, we will look at the gospel that began this week in the traditional liturgical calendar, which was the 19th Sunday after Pentecost, and the parable of the wedding banquet, or the parable of the wedding feast, which is from uh, Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14, and taking as our uh, text, our translation, the New Catholic Bible. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent forth his servants to summon those who had been invited to the banquet, but they refused to come. Then he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, my banquet is prepared. My oxen and my fatted cattle have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they ignored his invitation. One went off to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged, and he sent forth his troops who destroyed those murderers and burned their city to the ground. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy of that honor. Go forth, therefore, to the main roads and invite everyone you can find to the wedding banquet. The servants went forth into the streets and gathered together everyone they could find, good and bad alike. And so the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to greet the guests, he noticed one man was not properly dressed for a wedding. My friend, he said to him, how did you gain entrance here without a wedding garment? The man was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind his hands and feet and cast him outside into the darkness 
where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Thus far, the words of the Holy Gospel. <clears throat> now, this parable begins with a simile. The Messianic kingdom is like a wedding feast, and the king is God, the son is Christ. His servants are the prophets, and the invited guests are the Israelites who rejected him. As St. John says in the prologue of his gospel, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. And then the punishment of the city refers to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Now, the servant then sends out, um, or the servants that the king then sends out um, to seek new guests after the destruction of the city are the apostles and the disciples. And the new invitees are the Gentiles on the main roads, the highway, right? That, that broad road that leads to perdition. And he calls both the good and the bad. Now, this image of a marriage feast is fulfilled in the church in a couple of different ways. First off, in the present, it is liturgical. The, the Holy Eucharist, the, the Holy Mass, that's the banquet of these, the sacramental food and drink. This is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are called to the supper of the Lamb. So that's the present. But in the future, it has an eschatological fulfillment. It represents the ultimate union with Christ that takes place in heaven, uh, in eternal union with God and the saints. Now, with that in mind, Matthew uh, 22, 11 issues a warning to the church, as well as a statement uh, regarding God's judgment on Israel. And some scholars speak of these final verses almost as another parable, as, as the, the, a separate parable of the wedding garment. And it tells us that in this world, the good and the wicked are mixed together. For now is the time of patience. Now is the time of mercy. As St. Paul says, now is the acceptable time. And during this time, Christians must cooperate with God's grace, which is, you know, analogous to wearing a wedding garment in the, in the parable. Now, some of our separated brethren would suggest that the wedding garment represents faith. But uh, long before there was such a thing as Protestantism, uh, St. Gregory the Great said, the wedding garment signifies charity, which shows itself in good works, because without this, faith avails nothing. Or in the words of St. James from his epistle, faith without works is dead. You know, we are justified by works and not by faith alone. Therefore, the fact that the man without a wedding garment was silent, uh, speechless when he was questioned by the king, shows us that at the time of judgment, there's no excuse that we'll be able to make before God for not having charity. Since everyone may have it if he only asks it from God and be willing to practice it, and since it is one of the theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity, that are instilled in the soul at baptism. And as St. Paul says, you know, uh, there today, now, there remain these three, faith, hope, and charity, but the greatest of these is charity, because that's the only thing that will last forever. Now, considering that the Holy Mass is, as I just mentioned before, uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and the wedding garment in the parable then is analogous to the white garment of baptism, and represents a soul in the state of grace. And so that tells us that um, although we are obliged to assist at Mass every Sunday, we must not approach our Eucharistic King without the garment of grace, that is to say, 
we must not approach Holy Communion in a state of mortal sin. Which reminds me of a story. Um, it is related that back in the Middle Ages, back uh, during the time of the Crusades, there was a, a monk in the Holy Land who discovered that camels apparently go out into the desert alone to die. And so one day he saw a scene like this. He sees an old camel stumbling across the desert, um, across the desert sands, you know, on his last journey, pitiful and all alone. And as the monk watched, a shadow appeared in the sky, and it was a vulture wheeling above the camel in circles, just watching and waiting. And slowly the camel walked until finally it stumbled and fell. And right away the vulture swooped down. But then the, the camel got up to his knees and then got to his feet and then stumbled along again. So the vulture moved away and continued to, to fly in the great circles. And the sun beat down on the vulture, and so the monk could see his shadow circling around the camel who then stumbled again and again the vulture swooped and again he got back up and this went on and on until he passed out of sight with the camel stumbling and the vulture swooping down each time and the monk thought to himself that this was a picture of a soul in mortal sin that that always like that vulture the devil is there watching and waiting and ready to swoop down for the kill because mortal sin robs our souls of grace. Uh, when we commit a mortal sin, the light of God that shines in our soul goes out. And should we have the misfortune to die in mortal sin, the devil swoops down on us and then we belong to him for all of eternity. We become like the man in the gospel who didn't have on a wedding garment, who was cast into the exterior darkness, bound hand and foot where there's nothing but weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Now, in that regard, there's two resolutions that every single one of us should make. The first, which is part of the act of contrition, is to never, as long as we live, we must firmly resolve never to commit a mortal sin. And number two, uh, if through some misfortune we should commit a mortal sin, or in my case, I should say not if, but when, <laughs> when um, not to stay in that state but to remove that, to be returned to the state of grace by going to confession as soon as possible. You know, that, that parable of the wedding feast tells us, again, that now is the acceptable time. Now is the time of grace. So if you are the man without a wedding garment, okay, if, if you are in a state of mortal sin and you're reluctant to go to confession because I've been Catholic long enough to know what it feels like to not want to go to confession, to not want to go back into that box and accuse myself of the same stupid faults that I continue to fall into. Um, but I, I suggest that you think about this, that you have a choice. You have the option of entering a confessional and receiving absolution uh, in a state, a tribunal of, of pure mercy, or you can put it off and take the chance of leaving this world in a state of mortal sin and facing a tribunal of pure justice. The choice is yours, and that's no nonsense. Hey, when we come back, we're going to be talking about tradition. What is it? And what did Pope Francis have to say about it last month at that Conference of European Bishops? All that and more. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to a No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Uh, by the way, I am coming to you from uh, No Nonsense Catholic headquarters down here in Orange County because I suffered a rather serious knee injury last week. So I am grounded. I'm uh, hobbling about on crutches and whatnot. So I'm going to be uh, broadcasting from the No Nonsense uh, Command Center here for the next couple of weeks, presumably. Um, and I, I mentioned before the break that last month, uh, 23rd September 2021, to be exact, Holy Father Pope Francis addressed the Council of Bishops Conferences of Europe and said, and I quote, to make the church beautiful and welcoming, we need together to look to the future, not to restore the past, which unfortunately is a fad. Restoring the past will kill us. It will kill everyone, unquote. Now, clearly, uh, the Supreme Pontiff is employing some rather dramatic rhetoric in the cause of Catholic progressivism. Now, we've been talking on this program for the last several weeks about the hermeneutic of continuity versus the hermeneutic of rupture, and this would be the hermeneutic of rupture in action. Uh, and you can see, as, as is typical of progressive rhetoric, he, he idolizes or idealizes the future but demonizes the past, okay? Attachment to the past is dangerous. Trying to restore the past will, in fact, kill everyone. <laughs> now, the Pope's overwrought remarks are, are uh, especially in the context of uh, Traditiones Custodes and his other, um, you know, I you know the only word I can think of is attacks on Catholic tradition. Uh, you know, within, like I say, within that context, these remarks are quite obviously aimed at Catholics who are attached to the tradition of the church, especially the liturgical tradition and including the young for whom he says, and this is not the first time, uh, he says that young people who are attached to uh, uh, traditional Catholicism, the traditional mass, it's not a genuine attachment. It's just a fad, quote unquote. But, um, his words really represent what uh, we call in logic a straw man argument. You know, he's, he's really debating with himself by, by setting up a, a false conception and then knocking it down. Uh, traditional Catholics, let me uh, just say this, read my lips, are not trying to recover the past. Uh, temporally speaking, the past is literally nothing. Each present moment quickly recedes into the past and, and can never be recovered. What traditional Catholics want to restore is precisely that, tradition, not the past. See, tradition's not dead. That's the whole point of it. Tradition is the continuing influence of those who have gone before us. Now, admittedly, traditions can be merely habitual, right? Uh, the, the way we've always done it that way. Uh, but they can also be profoundly meaningful. But if we fall into that modern trap of equating uh, what's new with what's good, then we're likely to consider the old as obsolete. Anything new is good. Anything new is an improvement just because it's new. And the old must be, you know, put away because, uh, you know, you can't, can't turn back the clock. So appreciating tradition involves an attitude of openness to what is new but without letting go of whatever is good and true and beautiful. You know, uh, 
if I find goodness and truth and beauty in the works of those who have gone before me, then it is, it's right and natural that I would want to enjoy them uh, now in the present and preserve them for the future. See, uh, the idea of modern progress in, in science or technology is, is this you know, uh, kind of linear movement that's always going forward and, and making what went before obsolete. That, that has, like I say, it has a specific temporal direction. But truth, goodness, and beauty don't. Those things are eternal. And so it is foolish to reject, uh, to reject traditions in the name of progress. I also want to point out that tradition is not a fad, and it's not just nostalgia. Um, <laughs> George Rutler once said that uh, when he goes into a Gothic cathedral, he says, I could be nostalgic but I am never nostalgic about medieval dentistry, right? We embrace uh, th what's good and, and, and true and, and beautiful in the, in the present as well as in the past. You know, tradition consists of, of past things that are an active part of the present, that are relevant to our present life and therefore worthy of preservation. And, and where they've been ignored or denied, they're worthy of restoration. In fact, the whole of Christianity is a restoration project. Uh, to restore the relationship that was broken with God the Father in the Garden of Eden, to, as St. Pius X said, restore all things in Christ. So uh, a traditional Catholic, what I would call a no-nonsense Catholic, lives in the present <clears throat> and looks to a future, but one that builds on tradition as well as breaking new ground. Now, when Catholics talk about tradition, you know, tradition with uh, a big T, as we would say, we're typically talking about what's called sacred tradition. Um, and so the first question is, you know, did uh, did the Christ intend the gospel to be, uh, you know, constantly rewritten? I would say no. Did he expect the gospel to be uh, uh, proclaimed by by circulation of the Bible? I would say no, obviously. Uh, it was mainly by preaching that uh, that he intended to convert the nations. He says in Matthew's gospel, the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, preach the gospel to every creature, right? Teach teach all the nations to uh, to observe whatsoever I've commanded you, right? And, and then you've got, that is tradition, handing on the teaching from one generation to the next, you know? And, and of course, the apostles um, never circulated a single volume of the Bible. They went forth and preached, like it says in Mark's gospel. Uh, they went forth and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them. And of course, the New Testament wasn't even written until uh, the, you know, Christianity was already established. He said to the apostles, teach all men to observe all that I have commanded you. He commanded them to preach. He never once commanded them to write. Now, why am I bringing up Holy Scripture? Well, of course, because that's the contention of our separated brethren, that they say that, um, you know, the, the rule of faith must be scripture alone, and, and they reject tradition. And the Second Vatican Council, will the real Vatican II please stand up, and Dei Verbum, which is the uh, dogmatic constitution on the word of God, it says very explicitly that sacred scripture and sacred tradition together form a single deposit of the word of God. 
So he, God didn't intend for Holy Scripture to, to be our sole rule of faith, independently of you know, the, the broader tradition and the living voice of the magisterium. It's a three-legged stool. And I think that Christians over the years have had this temptation to, uh, you know, to uh, embrace one of those legs of the table, so to speak, one of those three pillars in, uh, uh, you know, over the others. So for the Orthodox, you, they kind of have that that tradition alone idea, and and the Protestants have this uh, uh, scripture alone idea, and and the Ultramontanist Catholic is the Magisterium alone. Whatever the Pope says this week, that's what the Church is. You know, uh, and all of those things, of course, are 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 flawed. All of those views, you need all three for it to work together. You need the tradition, you need the scripture, and you need the living voice of the church. So even in, even under the old law, even in the Jewish dispensation, in spite of their great veneration for the Torah and and for the other holy scriptures, you know they never dreamed of of you know an, a, a private appeal to the word of God. Uh, it would not have uh, occurred to them. When a religious dispute arose, it was decided by the high priest and the council, by the Sanhedrin. And their decision was to be obeyed um, in, in the old law under pain of death. And so the, the, Jews, the Jews didn't appeal to you know, a, a dead letter of the law, but to the living voice of the tribunal that God had established. And when Christ came on earth, he, he didn't change the order of things. In fact, um, he commanded the Jews to obey their constituted teachers. But with this caveat, he said, uh, uh, you know, no matter how disedifying their lives might be, you know, he said the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, or they've sat on the chair of Moses. In other words, that they speak with his authority. All things, therefore, they command you, observe and do. All right? And that's, that's pretty, uh, pretty clear even though the Pharisees are not living particularly edifying lives. And then, of course, he adds, um, but uh, do as they say, but not as they do, for they practice, but they do not preach. Right Now, until the, uh, <clears throat> this, by the way, is where we get the idea of the chair of Peter, talking about the chair of Peter. It's not a literal chair any more than the seat of Moses was a literal uh, chair. It is, in fact, uh, represents uh, his authority. So just as the Sanhedrin, the high priest, spoke with the authority of Moses, so Saint, uh, uh, the, the Pope and then the apostles speak with the authority of, or the Pope and the bishops speak with the authority of Peter and the apostles, right? So up, up until the, the Protestant Revolution in the 16th century, there really had never been any attempt for people to be governed solely by, you know, the dead letter of the law whether in religious affairs or in civil affairs either, for that matter. I mean, nobody pretends to live in a society uh, according to his own private interpretation of civil law, right? When cases come up, they're always decided by a competent tribunal. You go before a judge and a jury. Okay, so the question is, why then can't the Bible be the sole rule of faith? Well, because it's not within the reach of everybody, first thing. Uh, if it were the only guide, it would have to be within the reach of every inquirer for God wishes for all men to be saved. Now, you might think, yeah, but uh, we have the Internet now, and the Bible has been translated into uh, so many different languages, and, and people do have um, access to it. But what about in the primitive church? You know, I mean, the books that make up the, the, the Christian Bible 
were only together gathered together after the church had been established. I mean, it was the, the, what was it, the year three uh, ninety three when when the canon of scripture was finally set. That's the fourth century, right? The, the, the church had been around for quite a while before we had what we call the New Testament, and even when they were put together. It would be centuries before the advent of, of movable type and modern printing um, would make it possible for Bibles to be uh, cheap enough and uh, and plentiful enough for the average person to own one at all. Also, the Bible is difficult or can be difficult to understand. It is full of obscurities and difficulties, even for the learned. You know, we obviously we have... Um, many translations that try and translate the Bible into modern language, but stuff gets lost in the translation. And there are still things that are difficult to understand. And so we still need kind of an official interpreter. And the living magisterium and the tradition provides that interpretation. Okay, we're going to be back with more on this when we return. Lots more No-Nonsense Catholic right after this. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Matthew Arnold here for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, talking about sacred tradition. And actually, we're talking about tradition, scripture, and the magisterium forming, uh, you know, this this uh, um, the the one deposit of the Word of God and uh, its official interpreter. And to get to the meat of it, why do we need tradition? Well, first off, not all the truths that were revealed to us by God are contained in the Bible. There are some that are found only in divine tradition, at least explicitly. Uh, Tim Staples, a friend of mine, of course, a uh, convert from uh, evangelical Pentecostalism, uh, he would uh, argue that every Catholic doctrine is in the Bible, at least implicitly. And I would agree, but there are things that are not there explicitly and plenty of things. And the Bible itself says that it doesn't contain uh, everything that God revealed. Uh, for example, where is it in uh, John 21, 25 says, there are, also, uh, there are also many other things that Jesus did, and if every one of them was recorded, I do not think the world itself could contain all the books that would be written. So there are truths that have not been written down in Holy Scripture that have come to us by way of sacred tradition, big T tradition. Uh, and, you know, again, we see this in the Scripture. St. Paul saying to the Thessalonians, uh, hold fast to the teachings, to the traditions that you have learned, whether by our word or by our letter. And he puts his, his word first. Uh, divine tradition is everything that was revealed, all the revealed truths that were taught by Christ and the apostles, which were given to the church, you know, by by preaching, by word of mouth, and not through the Holy Scriptures. Um, although these, you know, traditions, the big T tradition, has been written down. It is included in uh, in the writing of the fathers of the church. These things are considered are not considered inspired, however, not they're not on the level of sacred scripture, but they are the 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 
the word of God in regard to the sacred tradition that have then been recorded. So in, in the wide sense, tradition just embraces the whole teaching of the church, and that would include the Holy Bible. Okay? Uh, in a stricter sense, uh, tradition is what was handed down orally from the apostles. And, of course, the apostles themselves uh, say that there's much that uh, they've delivered to the faithful only by word of mouth. And uh, among many examples of truths and tradition that are not clearly manifested in the Holy Scriptures are for the, uh, the exact number of sacraments, for example. Uh, um, what books should make up the Bible? Uh, how, how do you uh, baptize properly? That sort of thing. I mean, baptism is, is present, but how do you go about it? It's interesting. One of the first extra-biblical writings, one of the earliest that we have, is called the Didache, the teaching of the Twelve Apostles. Didache is Greek for teaching. And each one of the Twelve Articles of the Creed has, you know, traditionally, small-t tradition, uh, been associated with one of the Twelve Apostles. The point is that there is, this is the Apostles' Creed, right, is found in the Didache, this uh, one of the very oldest of the uh, professions of faith. It's the symbol of faith, and it tells you the things that you need to believe in order to be a Christian. And again, which, which you find in the Bible only piece by piece. Also, uh, the Didache um, has s specific instructions on like how to baptize, which I think is, you know, I, really important, of course, because baptism, you know, Christ himself made baptism uh, or made salvation contingent on baptism. So you have to be baptized, you have to be baptized right. And we know that the sacraments have matter and form. So it's the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but also um, the, the form, you know, you have to, or the matter, is, which is water. And, um, you know, the, these original baptisms, John the Baptist, was immersing people totally in the Jordan. Well, not everybody can go to the Jordan and get dunked by John the Baptist. So, you know, when Christian baptism comes along, they had to uh, look at the practical. And so in the Didache, it says that preferably you should be baptized in living water, which would be like the Jordan, moving water. Uh, and if not in living water, then in still water. But it says cold water rather than warm which seems like an odd distinction. But then you realize we're talking about uh, the very beginning of the second century. Where do you go to be immersed in warm water? Well, the only place is the public baths. And public bathhouses were as notorious in the first century as they are now. So that's probably not the place to be holding a baptism is the point. And then it says if you can't be immersed, then uh, baptism by sprinkling, that you pour the water over the head three times, and also um, talks specifically about the baptism of infants and how the profession of faith is made by the godparents and so on. These are, these are big T traditions that have everything to do with our salvation. So tradition is important. Okay? Now, obviously, all of the truths uh, of divine tradition have found their way into books over the last 2,000 years, um, and especially from the first Christian centuries the practices and the doctrines of the early church were preserved by uh, the men that we call the fathers of the church. Uh, these were men who were disciples of the apostles or contemporaries of the disciples or disciples of the disciples. And, you know, holy and learned men who instructed the church in the years of its first growth. 
And so you have, I mean, like uh, St. Clement of Rome, who was the third pope, uh, Ignatius of Antioch, or his mentor, St. Polycarp, both of whom were uh, disciples of St. John, Justin the Martyr, St. Irenaeus, um, you know, St. Martin of Tours, Vincent of Lorraine, and so forth. And so you have this, this large um, contingent of men who were hammering out the details of what it meant to be a Christian. Uh, and besides the writings of the fathers, the truths of divine revelation are found in the writings of the doctors of the church. These are men and women who um, have shown themselves over the years uh, in the life of the church that their teachings are applicable not only to their own circumstances or to their own day, but to the universal church. Doctor is teacher in Latin. These are the teachers of the church. And so it's important that they be... Uh, that they be listened to. Also, after that, you have the magisterial uh, pronouncements, the the uh, the teaching and decrees of popes and councils, and finally, you have um, one of the most important uh, sources of tradition, which is the liturgy itself, uh, as found in in the old missals and in the in the rituales. These are, um, you know, that that's not insignificant it's important to understand that uh, as the old formula puts it lex orandi lex credendi that the law of prayer is the law of belief and so the way that christians have always done it is um actually uh, profoundly important in regard to our worship so you have uh, the doctors of the church i wanted to just mention you know not only the uh, uh, you know, St. Uh, Hilary, St. Athanasius, uh, or Cyril of Jerusalem, St. Jerome, St. Augustine, these are men that were also fathers of the church. But then, you know, in the, you have these outstanding doctors of the Middle Ages, like, uh, well, St. Anselm of Canterbury, or uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Bonaventure, um, St. Albert the Great, Albertus Magnus, who was Thomas Aquinas's mentor. You can imagine, you know, being in heaven, you bump into the guy, hi, uh, and who are you again? They said, oh, I'm, uh, I'm Albert the Great. Oh, and what did you do on earth? Oh, I was, I was St. Thomas Aquinas's teacher. <laughs> okay. You can see why people, uh, put some stock in the, uh, writing of the doctors of the church. And then of course we have, uh, my favorite medieval doctor is, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, the, the, uh, mellifluous doctor who was also named the last of the fathers, even though he was a, a medieval saint. His grasp of scripture, his uh, command and mystical understanding of theology, um, the church has said, you know, ranks with the great, uh, the fathers of the church with, you know, like Jerome and, and Augustine and Athanasius. <clears throat> and so, and then of course we have the more recent ones, um, St. Therese of Lisieux, for example, uh, and the other uh, women doctors, uh, Hildegard von Bingen and uh, St. Catherine of Siena, both from the Middle Ages. And then from a little later, we have Teresa of Avila, uh, who was a mystic and a Carmelite, and then her uh, her spiritual daughter, Therese of Lisieux. So I, again, this is also a part of our tradition. And divine tradition, from, you know, again, from, from the Bible all the way up to Vatican II, uh, we have been taught that it must be believed as firmly as we believe in the Bible, because it, the Bible and the tradition, big T, sacred tradition, form one posit of the word of God. 
And it's well to remember that years went by before the Gospels were written down. I mean, being a, a traditional Catholic, I lean more towards an early date for the composition of the Gospels. I would say that, that Matthew likely wrote first, probably um, around the year 42. So, but even that, that's, you know, that's 10 years after the ascension of our Lord. That's a whole decade goes by. Some modern scholars would suggest that none of the Gospels were written until after 70 AD. So you have not just a decade, but decades. You know, you have a, uh, more than a biblical generation passing uh, before the Gospels are written down. But in the meantime, uh, Christians had to depend solely upon tradition. Tradition is older than the New Testament. In fact, we call the Christian Bible the New Testament, but the New Testament doesn't call itself that. Uh, the, the words New Testament appear in the New Testament only in uh, the words of um, our Lord at the Last Supper when he's consecrating the precious blood. He said, this is the chalice of my blood, the New Testament. This is the New Testament in my blood. So the New Testament was a sacrament before it was a document. And that's according to the document. <laughs> so when these books were written, uh, the various writers had definite and immediate purpose in mind. And if the church teaches a doctrine that can't be found in Scripture explicitly, it will be there implicitly and explicitly in the tradition. Okay, and when we come back, talking about the month of the rosary and Our Lady and her Psalter, when we return with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right after this. Okay, welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. October, as I mentioned at the top of the show, is the month of the Holy Rosary. And it is also um, uh, Respect Life Month, something along those lines, the pro-life thing. Obviously, the, the two things are very connected. The Rosary playing such an important part in the pro-life movement. But October is the month of the Rosary because back in the 16th century, back in the 1500s, uh, Europe was being torn apart by the Protestant rebellion and Christians were fighting against Christians and the, uh, the Muslim empire, the Ottoman empire saw this as an opportunity to, uh, to fulfill their dream of the conquest, the Muslim conquest of Europe. And so a naval fleet amassed, uh, off the coast of Europe to, uh, invade by sea in 1571, and Pope Pius V called for the princes of Europe to, to come together and defend uh, Christendom. Uh, only a few responded, all Catholic. And he knew that he needed more than just their military strength in order to defend uh, Christendom. And so he asked the faithful to pray, not just any prayer, but the rosary, and to request the intercession of the Blessed Mother. And at the Battle of Lepanto, October 7, 1571, the Holy League was victorious and saved Europe from Muslim invasion by the Ottoman Empire. Now, Pope St. Pius V attributed that great victory to the fact that at the same time that battle was raging, the Rosary confraternities at Rome and elsewhere uh, around Christendom were praying the Rosary and holding Rosary uh, processions. And so accordingly, 
he ordered a commemoration of the rosary to be made on that day, October 7th, and which was originally called uh, the Feast of Our Lady of Victory. A couple of years later, Pope Gregory XIII allowed the celebration of the Feast of the Rosary in churches uh, having an altar dedicated to the rosary, and then later it was just uh, um, granted to the uh, universal church. Um, uh, eventually, the entire month of October was dedicated to the Holy Rosary, and as I said, in, in the United States, it's also Respect Life Month. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about the origin of the Most Holy Rosary. People have been repeating prayers and using beads to count prayers with and so forth for a very long time in various cultures. But the Holy Rosary, what we know as the Holy Rosary, well, first off, it's composed principally, uh, substantially, of the Lord's Prayer and the Angelus Salutation. That is to say, the Our Father and the Hail Mary. And these prayers were, were the first uh, devotions of the Christian faithful. And have been all through the centuries, you know, from the time of the apostles all the way down to the present. Uh, but it was only in the year 1214 that Holy Mother Church received the rosary in its present form and according to the method that we use uh, still today. It was given to the church by St. Dominic, uh, the, the uh, founder of the Dominicans, the order of preachers, who received it from the Blessed Virgin herself as a powerful means of converting the Albigensian heretics and other sinners. Now, St. Louis de Montfort tells the story of how St. Dominic received the rosary in his book, The Secret of the Rosary. Uh, and that's based also on the preaching of, or the writing of Blessed Alan de la Roche, who was a uh, uh, saint and uh, author from the 1400s, right? So a couple hundred years after St. Dominic, and yet, yet another Dominican. Uh, and so anyway, as the story goes, St. Dominic, seeing the sinfulness of Catholics, um, was was hindering the conversion of the Albigensian heretics. And that's something else that's still true today. I think there's a lot of people that don't convert to Catholicism precisely because of the uh, example of Catholics that they see. And so he um, he withdrew into the forest near Toulouse, where he prayed continuously for three days and three nights asking heaven what to do, weeping, doing harsh penances uh, in reparation uh, for you know his own sins and those of the, of the people until he finally fell exhausted. Uh, at which point Our Lady appeared to him, accompanied by three angels, and said, according to St. Louis de Montfort, Dear Dominic, do you know which weapon the Blessed Trinity wants to use to reform the world? Oh, my lady, he said, you know far better than I do, because next to your son, Jesus Christ, you have always been the chief instrument of our salvation. And then Our Lady replied, I want you to know that in this kind of warfare, the battering ram has always been the angelic psalter, which is the foundation stone of the New Testament. Therefore, if you want to reach these hardened souls and win them over to God, preach my psalter. So with, with burning zeal for the conversion of the people in that district, he made straight for the cathedral, where unseen angels were ringing the bells to gather the people together, and St. Dominic began to preach. Apparently a storm broke out, and there was a, a manifestation, a supernatural manifestation of uh, an image of Our Lady raising her hands to heaven and so forth. And be between those extraordinary phenomena and the fervent and, and compelling explanation of the importance and value of the Holy Rosary, almost all of the people of Toulouse embraced it 
and renounced their false beliefs. And in a very short time, a great improvement was seen in the town, as you might imagine, because the people began leading Christian lives and gave up their former bad habits, and then those who were heretics converted. And ever since St. Dominic established devotion to the Holy Rosary, it has always been called the Psalter of Jesus and Mary, after what Our, Our Lady said to St. Dominic. And because the number of, number of Hail Marys in the 15 decades, 150, is the same as the number of Psalms in the book of the Psalms of David. So since uh, simple, uneducated people were not able to, to recite the Psalms, didn't have uh, Bibles and Psalters, many of them couldn't read anyway, uh, they didn't do the hours, that's for priests and monks, so the rosary was, you know, they, they prayed the rosary to join in with that liturgical prayer, and it has always been held to be just as fruitful for lay people as the Psalter is for the clergy and religious. Now, according to St. Louis de Montfort, uh, the rosary should be considered to be even more valuable than the Book of Psalms for three reasons. First, because Our Lady's Psalter he says, bears a nobler fruit, that of the word incarnate, whereas David's Psalter only prophesies his coming. Secondly, just as the real thing is more important than its prefiguration, just as the body is more important than its shadow, in the same way the Psalter of Our Lady, the Rosary, is greater than David's Psalter, which did no more than prefigure it. And thirdly, because the Our Father and Hail Mary, the prayers of Our Lady Psalter, is the direct work of the Most Holy Trinity and not made through a human instrument, i.e., you know, David, Solomon, and the other uh, authors of the Psalms. Our Lady's uh, Psalter is broken up into three um, parts of five decades each, right? So 15 decades or five sets of mysteries. And, and he says, again, for three reasons. Number one, to honor the persons of the most blessed Trinity, the three persons of the Trinity. Number two, to honor the life, death, and glory of Jesus Christ. Number three, to imitate the church triumphant, to help the members of the church militant, and to lessen the suffering of the church, you know, lessen the pains of the church suffering. And to imitate the three groups into which the Psalms are divided and also the spiritual life. So the first being the purgative way, the second, the illuminative, and the third, the unitive. And finally, to give graces in abundance during our lifetime, peace at death and glory in eternity. Now, everything that I've just shared is from that book, uh, The Secret of the Rosary by St. Louis de Montfort, or based on it at least. And one of the features of that book is a collection of stories relating the wonders that God has worked through this most powerful devotion, including a couple I want to share with you. First is that of Blanche of Castile, who's one of my favorites. Uh, she was the mother of, uh, well, uh, she first off, let me say she was married to King Louis VIII. And it tells you who she was the mother of. She was deeply grieved um, because after 12 years of marriage, she had still not conceived. And she was actually visited by St. Dominic. And he advised her, as you might expect, to pray the rosary, to ask every day, uh, to ask for the grace of motherhood. And, and she faithfully carried out his advice, and in 1213, she gave birth to her eldest son, Philip. Tragically, Philip died in infancy. Now, rather than be overwhelmed by this disappointment, uh, 
Queen Blanche sought out Our Lady's help even more fervently. She had rosaries given out to all the members of the court. She sent rosaries to people in, in, in the cities throughout the kingdom, and she asked them to join her in treating God for a blessing that this time would be complete, an heir to the throne. And in 1215, St. Louis, King St. Louis of France was born, the prince who was to become the glory of France and the very model of Christian kings. Uh, another story uh, concerning Dominic and medieval royalty is that of Alphonsus VIII of Aragon and Castile. And he'd been leading a disorderly life and was punished by God in a number of ways, one of which being that he'd been worsted in battle and had to take refuge in a city belonging to one of his allies. Again, St. Dominic passed through and it was on Christmas Day. And as always, he preached the Holy Rosary and pointed out the great graces that we can obtain through it, including that those who devoutly say the rosary will overcome their enemies and regain what they've lost in warfare. Uh, not surprisingly, the king sent for St. Dominic <clears throat> to say, is that really true? And he assured him that it was. And that if he would pray the rosary, practice the devotion, join the confraternity, he'd see for himself. And he prayed the rosary every day for a year. And then after a year on Christmas Day again, Our Lady appeared to King Alphonse uh, VIII and said, Alphonsus, you have served me for a year by saying my rosary devoutly every day, so I have come to reward you. I have obtained the forgiveness of your sins from my sons, and I'm going to give you this rosary. Wear it. I promise you that none of your enemies will ever be able to harm you again. And, and she vanished. Of course, he's overjoyed, greatly encouraged, and immediately goes in search of his wife, Queen Eleanor of England to tell her about Our Lady's gift and the promise that went with it. An interesting thing, Queen Eleanor had gone blind sometime before, and when he uh, held the rosary that Our Lady gave him to her eyes, her sight was restored. And then he rallied his troops and uh, uh, routed his enemies, You know, was able to, to take back his, uh, his territories. And St. Louis de Montfort said, it's not surprising because he never went into battle without first saying his rosary. And that's the, that's the message, I guess, that uh, the month of the rosary should be for us, that we are, as you know, involved in a spiritual battle, each and every one of us. And we should never go into battle without praying our rosary. You know, King Alphonsus made sure the members of his court joined the confraternity, the Holy Rosary, saw that people were devoted to it. The queen joined the confraternity, and she and her husband preserved in Our Lady's service and in the faith of Christ and lived really holy lives. And at the end of the day, that's the whole point of all this, to get holy or die trying. Hey, I want to say thank you for listening. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. This has been No Nonsense Catholic. Until next week, may God richly bless you and your family.